First, let me say this. I care deeply about the democratic process and protecting its integrity. Facebook's mission is all about giving people a voice and bringing people closer together. Those are democratic values and we're proud of them. I don't want anyone to use our tools to undermine democracy. That's not what we stand for. That, as you may know, is Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg. A lot has changed since he issued that statement on his platform back in September 2017. But unfortunately, when it comes to democracy and misinformation on social media, a lot has not. And that's what we're going to talk about today on Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brainstorm. I'm Michal Avram. And I'm Brian O'Keefe. Michal, I read something kind of crazy about this podcast on social media. What? Yeah, for real. Uh, According to this article I looked at, at least it looked like an article, this episode might have been created by a foreign government to help influence the election. Whoa, will you tweet that out so I can retweet it? Yeah, I already shared it. I mean, I don't really know if it's true, but it would be pretty shocking if it were true. So I figured I should share it to everybody and see if I got a reaction. All right. So, Brian, thank you for illustrating exactly how conspiracy theories start. This is what is at stake here with, you know, our democracy. Yeah, I mean, and that's really one of the challenges of covering technology and social media and how it all interacts with the uh, election that we're all you know leading up to right now is it's hard to sift through this information and the fake stuff kind of moves faster than the real news a lot of the time and gets more of a reaction. And by the way, it's not just social media, which is what we're going to talk about today. It's also the quote unquote traditional media like us, because to your point, how do you cover this stuff when you don't know what's true and what's not, including some of our own president's tweets? So Before we dig into 2020, care to take a short trip back to 2016 with me, Brian? Yeah, let's do it. In the week or so since the election, there has been mounting criticism of whether web giants like Facebook and Google used enough discretion and editorial responsibility in screening out fake news sites. While Facebook is cooperating with congressional investigators into possible Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. Things happened on our platform in this election that should not have happened, especially and very troubling foreign interference in a democratic election. Facebook has come under fire recently for its role in last year's election. Reports have surfaced showing the social networking site was a breeding ground for misinformation. It's crazy to think that that was just four years ago, Brian. Um, You know, I think for me, for a lot of people, that was such a wake-up call, the 2016 election and the role of social media and misinformation here. I mean, I think a lot of us still really thought that Facebook and other social media companies were doing more good than harm in the world. And and this is kind of when that narrative shifted. Yeah, I think the promise of social media and technology and the internet has always been about connecting us and bringing us together through these networks. And you know what we started to learn in 2016 is that they also have the potential to tear us apart. And I I think we're still grappling with that. But let's look at where we stand going into this election. And to get an overview, we called our colleague Danielle Abril, who covers the big tech companies and has spent a lot of time thinking about this issue. So Danielle, we are 
days away from a very contentious presidential election. And there's so much scrutiny right now on Facebook and Twitter and all of the social platforms and so much pressure on them to manage the misinformation that we're seeing on all of these platforms, you know, conspiracy theories. What's happening right now? How are they trying to manage this process as we get closer to the election? Well, it's an interesting time for the social media platforms. I think what we saw in 2016 was basically ill-preparedness, for lack of better words. Um, They weren't prepared for the level of uh, misinformation or influence foreign actors would be trying to to put into their spaces. Since then, what we've really seen is them ramp up that policing on that type of information. But we're really seeing a problem with organic misinformation. So misinformation coming from users, from politicians, in ways that are harder to police because you almost need instant fact-checking. A lot of these things are politicized. So they're really stuck in a really tough position right now, trying to make sure that they're being politically neutral, but also not causing more havoc on the 2020 election. Who would you say out of the um, social media companies, it seems like Twitter was kind of at the forefront of blocking misinformation, but Facebook is kind of catching up. You know, we just recently saw that YouTube is now banning QAnon content, which is, you know, these conspiracy theorists. Are they kind of in a race now to see, like, who can block more things faster? So I think what's happening now, or what I've been seeing over the recent last couple months, is one platform will move to do something, and then all the other platforms will say it oh, okay, well, maybe we need to do that too. Because if Twitter does something and says, you know, makes this bold stance of we're not going to allow this to happen on our platform, then everybody turns to Facebook and says, what are you doing, Facebook? And there's more pressure than there was before when they were all sort of equally not policing these things. Um, So I would say like Twitter was one of the first to come out with, we're just banning political ads altogether. Granted, that was easy for Twitter because it really didn't have political advertisers. So it wasn't a big statement for them to come out and ban that. And then now we're starting to see Facebook say, okay, we're going to ban political ads one week before the election. And then they went a step further and said, okay, we're going to ban political ads indefinitely after the election, really in a move to try to prevent misinformation through ads while the election is still happening. So We are seeing them sort of flip-flop on who's taking the lead. I I haven't seen YouTube yet step up and be the leader yet. Um, That could change over time. But yeah, I think when one one steps up, um, the others feel more pressure. And I think we'll continue to see that. It seems like it's one thing for, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or any of these other, the leaders of the other social media companies to say, okay, this is where we draw the line. But actually executing on these new policies is quite another thing. So how effective have they been at combating misinformation where they've decided to draw the line? And do you think at the end of the day, do you think that this is still going to have impact on the elections? Facebook and Twitter have actually had a hard time policing according to the policies that they roll out previous to 2020, previous to the new rules that they're putting in. It's just a hard job. Content moderation is hard. So I think 
while these new rules may hopefully curtail some misinformation, um, the actual execution of that is a different story. And I think the misinformation is still out there. And I think I don't know if it will necessarily influence the election one way or another, but I definitely think it helps fuel political division in the country. So, Michal, that's not terribly encouraging, actually. There's still a lot of misinformation out there that the platforms haven't had much luck controlling. Uh, We should definitely point out that Facebook and Twitter have made a lot of changes since 2016 with the goal of eliminating much of this information, or at least they've said they've made a lot of attempts to do so. Right. And that's where this gets tricky. So yes, they have put in place different rules about what is allowed, what's not allowed, about you know doing away with political ads for certain timeframes, uh, fact-checking, uh, providing context. But there are so many issues here. One is scale. And so far, when it comes to using AI or using human moderators, you know, even when they've sort of put their their might behind some of these policies, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're easy to enforce. And another part of the problem is that it's too too little, too late. The cat's out of the bag. Yeah, I mean, no one is saying this is not a difficult challenge, but it's pretty clear that no matter where you fall politically, no matter where you come down on free speech versus. Uh, you know, monitoring what's on these platforms, that we have a problem, that we have issues that need, you know, really thoughtful solutions. So we spoke to two experts who have opinions on how to address these problems. Yeah. So let's start with Roger McNamee. Um, Roger is a longtime tech investor. And Brian, you will like this. He's also a musician. He plays bass and guitar and sings in a band, and he has for years. He also, by the way, founded an elephant sanctuary in Northern California along with his wife. So anyways, more to what we're talking about here today. He invested in Facebook early on, um, but has become one of its biggest and most outspoken critics in recent years. And I wanted us to speak to him because he's been so entrenched in tech and he's got a lot of heart and passion when he speaks as well. Um, But I think this is a voice that's important to hear and is more powerful than someone who's critical of tech but hasn't really been a part of it. I spent 34 years as an investor in Silicon Valley. In 2006, I was asked by Facebook's chief privacy officer to take a meeting with Mark Zuckerberg. Mark was 22 years old, Facebook was two years old. I was able to help Mark solve a crisis. And for a period of three years thereafter, I was one of his mentors. And one of the things I did was I introduced him and brought in Sheryl Sandberg into the company as chief operating officer. So as you can imagine, I was a huge fan of Facebook and a huge believer in the power of technology to make people's lives better. It was not until 2016 that I began to see things going on on Facebook that violated my values and caused me to realize something was really wrong. The Brexit referendum in the UK was, which was June of 2016, that was the first time when I realized that democracy was under threat because the business model, the culture, and the algorithms of Facebook could be used by bad people to harm innocent people or to undermine an election. And you've talked about how the business model itself is what's at fault here, right? That it's basically rewarding disinformation. So 
how can this be fixed? The challenge we face today is that the business model of internet platforms like Facebook, like Google, like Twitter, is based on grabbing our attention. And the way that they do that is to play on the elements of human psychology that we cannot resist, specifically our sense of self-preservation, which is flight or fight. The content that does that best is hate speech, disinformation, and conspiracy theories. And so the algorithms are tuned in a way that promotes the content that engages us. So it's not, those things are not incidental to the business model. They are the lubricant of the business model. And what is really clear is that each time these companies say, well, we'll hire people to review all the content and get rid of the bad stuff, that that's actually an insincere statement because when people are looking, they're never going to find everything. There's always going to be a delay. And the scale of these companies is such that even if they wanted to eliminate it all, it wouldn't work. So what I would like to see us do instead is to regulate them in a way that says they may no longer amplify with an algorithm the content that is most valuable to them. I want them to treat all content the same so that we get everything in chronological order or in alphabetical order or by subject. There are lots of ways to do it that get rid of this amplification. I in no way want to prevent speech from happening. What I want to do is prevent the amplification of harmful speech, which gives the most extreme voices in our society much more political power than their numbers should allow them. So Facebook and other social media companies, they have made some steps since the 2016 election. Do you think that any of the steps that they've made voluntarily, more or less, have actually made an impact and are going to make an impact for this upcoming election? Each of these companies has made at least a few changes. YouTube, which is a terribly harmful platform, has done the least. Facebook and Twitter have done a lot more. None of the changes that they made prior to two weeks ago have had any measurable benefit. Conspiracies like QAnon, the organization of white supremacist hate groups, the massive spread of COVID denial. Those things have all happened since Facebook and Twitter made the changes that they bragged so much about. More recently, Facebook has committed to banning QAnon pages and QAnon Facebook groups. Twitter followed suit, and now YouTube has followed suit. Then Facebook said it would get rid of Holocaust denial. So it has done a series of things in the last 10 days to two weeks that if the execution of those changes is complete, will have a difference. In the end, though, these things are all cosmetic, these changes. You have to force changes in the business model. And fortunately, there are members of Congress who not only understand this, but are committed to bringing those kinds of changes about. And what's interesting is you're starting to see people in both political parties who not only recognize the issue, but are talking about the same kinds of changes. They have very different motivations for why they're doing it, but the things they're talking about are very similar. So 
I kind of feel that if, if the election turns out properly and we keep the pressure up on a new administration, that we're going to eventually turn a corner here. And what's really important about that is that the next wave of technology, the one that is designed to empower us rather than to harm us, that's going to be taking place all over the country. It won't be just confined to Silicon Valley. And it's something to look forward to. And in order to get there, we have to break these monopolies, Facebook, Google, Twitter. We have to require different business models. But we've been there before with other industries. We can do it again. And I'm very hopeful that that's the path we are now on. Brian, our next guest is just as passionate about this topic as Roger, but I sense he comes at it with more of an academic approach. Yeah. Uh, Sinan Aral is the director of MIT's initiative on the digital economy. And he wrote this new book that takes on this topic directly. It's called The Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, and Our Health, and How We Must Adapt. That's a crucial second part of a long subtitle. So of course, the very first thing I asked him to do was to define the hype machine. So the hype machine consists of the social media industrial complex, which is all of the platforms, uh, all of the third party companies that are providing services or data uh, in that ecosystem, as well as the policymakers that are thinking about how to regulate it and the consumers around the world, the over 3 billion people that use it every day. Uh, and the reason I call it the hype machine is because it runs on an attention economy, which is designed to get our attention and sell that attention to advertisers and anyone uh, else uh, as a precursor to persuasion. And the way it does that is by hyping us up. The election seems to be you know, kind of a, a flashpoint for thinking about social media. And we're on the cusp of a very consequential presidential election and national election. What is going on inside the hype machine in social media right now as we get close to this election? And how much is it distorting the process? Well, if you think back to 2016, Russia spread ma manipulative misinformation to 126 million people on Facebook, 20 million people on Instagram, 10 million tweets from accounts with 6 million followers on Twitter, and 43 hours of YouTube content in what Robert Mueller called a conspiracy to defraud the United States by meddling in our election. And if you fast forward to this year, it's even worse. Russia is more sophisticated than it was in 2020. They're nudging real American citizens rather than impersonating them to spread misinformation. They've moved their servers to domestic soil to avoid surveillance because our intelligence agencies have a harder time surveilling uh, on U.S. soil. They've infiltrated Iran's cyber war department, perhaps to launch attacks made to look like they came from Tehran. Uh, and we're no more prepared than we were in 2016. I mean, that is truly frightening. Um, when you say that they are nudging U.S. citizens instead of just trying to, you know, use bots and uh, use ways of influencing things from the outside, could you expand on that a little bit? Well, they will pose as organizers, community organizers for one party or the other or for a particular cause. 
and then they will reach out to real American citizens and say, hey, you should join the cause. You should go out and protest in the streets or you should create videos. And, uh, and then what they will do is those real citizens will create posts or videos or real physical events. And then Russia will use botnets to amplify that material as well as encourage other people to continue to retweet it by at mentioning celebrities and politicians. So as more misinformation, more conspiracy theory uh, tweets and just made up stories, the kinds of sensational pieces that you've talked about make their way out there, we're asking more of the platforms that have been created to serve these to us and generate this response to control it. How are they prepared to deal with this? How are they dealing with this? Are they in any way, you know, responsibly mounting a response to this, or are they just completely falling short, which is, I think, what a lot of people would argue? Well, for years, they've been completely falling short. In the last couple of weeks, they have started to do things ahead of the election that, frankly, they should have been doing a long time ago and should probably continue after the election. Facebook banned QAnon and is starting to uh, clean QAnon groups and pages out of Facebook. They said that they will no longer accept Holocaust denial, where for years they allowed it. Twitter has indicated that you won't be able to retweet between October 26th and Election Day without quote tweeting and adding your own context to the information. They've started to nudge us to read the article that we're retweeting, clicking on the link and reading it before retweeting. Facebook says that it won't allow political advertising after the election. Facebook says that it will not allow a campaign to declare victory early and so on. This is just happening in the last few weeks. But for years and years, we've been calling on them to make more sustainable, long-term, comprehensive and systematic changes. And we're just getting these movements in the last few weeks before the election. It's too little too late for the elections. But Going forward for a sustainable future, we need to solidify some of these changes and dramatically add to them in order to affect the design of the hype machine to create a sustainable information ecosystem for ourselves. So given the fact that, for instance, QAnon is, is a conspiracy theory so bizarre and complex, it's hard to even summarize, Facebook and now YouTube have said they're banning it, but millions of people believe it. You know, politicians are embracing it. It's uh, the cat is out of the bag on that. And there's so many other examples of that. So, I mean, do you believe that the platforms have gotten religion or are they just trying to mount a PR campaign in advance of the election because they know so much scrutiny is, is on them now? I think it's a little of both. I mean, I think that anytime you analyze human behavior, whether it's in the form of a large corporation or an individual, you have to look at people's incentives. And there hasn't been an incentive to change for many years. But I think what's happening now is that they're facing a backlash in the form of the delete Facebook movement, followed by the stop hate for profit movement, the specter of real regulation coming down the pipe. And they are recognizing that now they have an incentive to make changes. Uh, in order to avoid some of the, the harmful outcomes that they might see from a backlash, either regulatory or mass exodus from social media. And I think that it's the beginning of what I hope will be a, a sustained 
period of change for social media. So if the next president, whoever it is, were to name you the chief social media officer of the United States, what would be the first three steps you would take to bring some order and some you know, rationalization to this crazy new industry and world that's just sprung up in the last 15 years? Uh, three very easy things that I would do right off the bat. First, I would declare and organize a national commission on democracy and technology that brought the experts into the conversation. The last antitrust hearing started to get a little bit more palatable with actual real questions. But for years, the senators were not prepared or the representatives were not prepared uh, to ask appropriate questions or to even know how this technology works. So the commission, uh, a national commission like the Warren Commission or commissions before it would bring journalists, activists, scientists, platform leaders together to really have a meaningful conversation about what we do. Secondly, I think uh, the entry ticket to solving the social media crisis is to create competition in the social media economy. And that entails interoperability legislation, data portability and social network portability it's the same thing we did with the cell phone industry when we forced companies to allow you to take your cell phone number with you when you switched carriers. And then the third thing I would do is I would lay out all of the market failures that exist and get to work in the commission solving each of those market failures. And what I mean by market failures? Well, it's akin to pollution. Companies that pollute do not internalize the cost of that pollution. It's borne by society. And since they don't internalize the cost of that pollution, they don't bear the cost. They have no incentive to change it. Those types of market failures require a government to step in with nuanced policy. All of that being said, I think that one thing that we've forgotten is our own responsibility in developing norms in how we use this technology that plays such a huge part. And I describe this as one of the four levers that we have for steering the hype machine into calmer waters, those levers being money, code, norms, and laws, the norms are up to us. The norms of how we deal with fake news, what kind of material we post, and so on, it's a huge responsibility. It's a responsibility that we cannot abdicate. We need more digital media literacy in our schools, and we need more responsible use of these technologies every day. Seems like we also need real leadership because we're making up these norms, as you've talked about, as we go along. This is all very new for the human brain and for our society, and it's raced ahead so quickly. You know, who's going to take that role of leadership and say, here are the norms? There's no council of elders getting together and say, proclaiming, you know, this is responsible use of these technologies. It's so true. And that's why I advocate for a National Commission on Democracy and Technology in the book. We need to create that uh, at the level of the policymakers. Right now, the platform leaders are focused on short term shareholder value by hyping up engagement, by selling more ad inventory, and so on. What they don't realize is that's not sustainable long term. That's not long run shareholder value maximizing because it creates a backlash. It creates a stop hate for profit movement. It creates a delete Facebook movement. It creates a regulatory backlash. 
And the enlightened leaders of the new social age will be the ones that realize that in order to succeed sustainably long term, they have to align long run shareholder value with society's values in a way that they can create a healthy information ecosystem. Michal, Sinan makes a really interesting point there, I think, which is that these companies, Twitter, Facebook, the social media companies are still relatively young companies. And they've really only mostly seen success so far. You know, they really have not experienced negative consequences other than some bad publicity along the way here and there. Twitter's stock price this year is up hugely. Facebook over several years has has had incredible revenue and profit growth and, and market valuation growth. And I don't think they're fully incentivized to change their behavior or take radical steps until they experience some, you know, some real downside. And if that's going to come from the market or another place, we'll see. But I think that it's going to take something like that to really change their behavior. Yeah, I I, I totally agree, Brian. Um, and I think you know one thing to to point out is while their performance uh, financially is still very very impressive, their costs are going up. This is expensive to do. You know, both human moderators and developing technology. Um, to at least mitigate some of of these issues. Um, Before we wrap up here, I do want to tell our listeners that we reached out to Facebook and we asked them for an interview too. We wanted to hear how specifically they were approaching these problems on the platform and to give them a chance to respond to their critics. They didn't make anyone available, but they did provide us with a statement and here it is. We're running the largest voting information campaign in U.S. history to connect people with official information about the election and how to vote. For posts that try to delegitimize the outcome of the election or debate the legitimacy of voting methods, we're adding a label with credible context from the Bipartisan Policy Center. And we're fighting misinformation by showing warning labels on posts that have been debunked by fact checkers. So far, we've added these labels to 150 million pieces of content in the U.S. between March and September of this year. That's from a Facebook company spokesperson. You know, one thing that this tells me is just how big of a problem this is. The numbers of what they've been able to address versus what's out there, who knows? But Brian, I'm I'm wondering, to your point, these companies don't really act until they're forced to. And uh, what do you see as beyond their moves to combat some of this? What do you see as the prospects for regulation? I know not everybody agrees that that's the right approach, but but do you feel like we're in different territory today than we were four years ago on that front? In this uh, crazy polarized environment that we live in politically right now, uh, I think big tech is is maybe the one subject that has unified <laughs> a lot of us. I mean, the people on the left are are disappointed. Uh, people on the right are angry because they feel like they're not treated fairly. And I think that there are real potential consequences for that that could come out of Washington, D.C. in the form of regulation. There was recently a 450-page report after a 16-month investigation of the big tech companies that was very critical that came out of a judicial committee. You know, Getting any regulation passed is going to be very complicated, but it's not something that big tech wants to see. And I think that maybe that threat could be a catalyst for them to double down and really try to clean up their act a little bit more. Well, maybe the social networks will be what unites us and connects us all. 
but just not really in the way that they expected to. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with more talk on how tech is reshaping our world. The Brainstorm Podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is written by Megan Arnold and edited by Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold.